Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Okay, good evening. Firstly, uh, my name is Tony Wood. I am the Energy Program Director at Grattan Institute, and um, this is the uh, uh, last of our series of Energy Future seminars this year in partnership with the Melbourne Energy Institute. Um, to say, if, you, if any of you here um, are from another country or from another planet, you probably don't know that energy's been a bit of a topical issue in public policy this year. So if you have anybody next to you who is in those other categories, first explain they can't sit for parliament, and secondly, explain to them that um, it is a big issue in this country. <laughs> the, um, so I, I think so, there was, we saw another senator bit the dust today. Uh, I think most of you know that. Um, it's sort of like an interesting who's keeping score. The, um, the topic today is, um, I think, it, timely because we, it seems to me we're at a point where things could either start to improve or get worse. And every time you think you're at that point, you think it can't possibly get worse, but then we find new ways to demonstrate that that's not true. Um, so maybe this time we might actually have some chance, some way out of it. And I think one of the things that will influence that is the people who are starting to try and have a real influence on the way out of the mess we've been in. And um, a couple of those people are here to speak with us tonight. Um, there is uh, this Friday, the Coag Energy Council will meet in Hobart um, to consider uh, a number of things. I mean, obviously, the, there's a lot of work to be done with the implementation of the Finkel Blueprint. There's a lot of work to be done with things that were already in train prior to the Finkel Review. And there's this interesting vexed question of the quaintly termed nas uh, National Energy Guarantee, um, which is called that because it couldn't be called anything else, as far as I can work out. Uh, otherwise, it would have been far too politicised. There's an election in Queensland on Saturday and energy will be a significant topic in that election. Um, there are significant differences between the two major parties in Queensland around energy. And um, Adani coal mine might be one of them, but issues to do with the value of network assets, renewable energy targets and so forth are all very much on the agenda there. In this state, Victoria, there are also significant differences between the Labor government and the Liberal National Coalition on energy issues, in particular associated again with renewable energy, um, with retail competition and with, um, with, uh, with gas access. South Australia has an election in March and again, energy will almost certainly be a factor there. And I can tell you right now, if the lights go out in Adelaide over summer, it will be uh, more than a significant issue for the South Australian election. And sometime between tomorrow and um, about uh, this time, about uh, April 2019, there will be a federal election and energy and climate change will once again be on the agenda there. So we need to, tonight is to think about some of these things. Um, I should also say that we, of course, are doing this um, this evening on the traditional, on the, on the land for which the traditional owners um, are the Wurundjeri and we should pay their respect to their elders and families, uh, their elders past and present. The um, order of the event this evening is that um, we'll hear firstly from Rod Sims. Uh, Rod is the chair of the ACCC and they have been doing um, significant work in the energy sector, in particular around gas and more recently, and a piece of work which is underway right now for which the preliminary report 
uh, was delivered only recently on the whole issue of uh, competition in the market. In particular, starting with retail, but um, given the, the nature of what the ACCC needs to look at, um, it will go further up the chain and that report is due the middle of next year. Secondly, we'll hear from Kerry Schott. Kerry is currently the chair of the Energy Security Board and I can only uh, hope that she knew what she was letting herself in for when she uh, accepted this remit. I'm sure it's great fun and Kerry is probably one of the people in this country who is both, from my observation, um, uh, by way of her own attitude to things that go on in the world and her experience, extremely qualified for this role. Because I think, um, uh, and some of you may have seen Kerry's comments recently about the behaviour of politicians. Well, there's not too many people who, have, who could have made that comment without someone with the gravitas of, um, uh, of Kerry Schott. So um, Kerry now has the role of the chair of the Energy Security Board and she will um, speak to us uh, after Rod. And then Michael Breer, who is the director of the Melbourne Energy Institute, um, will um, make some comments and in particular pick up some of the themes that have come out of the, co of the uh, points that um, both Rod and Kerry have made. And then we'll, um, uh, as we always do in our forums, um, uh, have a forum with a panel, um, initially a short discussion about some of the issues that have emerged, and um, then it will open to you uh, and um, you, the audience, and the objective is to finish here by 7.30. So I don't intend to read the bios of the people I've just mentioned. Um, they're in the documentation that went out with the review, and um, a most of them, I suspect, will be well known to most of the people in this audience anyway. So can I begin by introducing <laughs> a random person who just walked in, right? Uh, can I begin by introducing Rod Sims, the chair of the ACCC? Well, first of all, I have to apologise for being completely overdressed. Um, I do apologise for that, uh, but it's nice to be back. Um, I think when I was at university, there was only the art school. There wasn't the old and the new. The building doesn't seem to have changed very much, certainly from the outside, that's for sure. Um, I thought, uh, and look, thanks, Tony, and it's great to uh, be here. And seriously, I always love coming back uh, back to Melbourne University. Um, I thought I'd just make a couple of comments based firstly on the, or, or I had a couple of propositions and questions I might just sort of put looking at the seminar overview. And proposition one is, we certainly do have an energy mess. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, our focus at the ACCC is uh, uh, completely on the affordability issues. Um, that's why Kerry and I are great uh, partners. She deals with reliability and emissions. I deal with affordability. Between the two of us, we've got it all covered. It's just a great divide, which I really enjoy. She's the one who gets her head kicked in. I just talk about affordability, which is much easier. Uh, so, look, we certainly do have a crisis. There's no doubt about that. It's high energy prices are causing major problems for consumers, particularly low-income consumers. They're paying way more uh, as a percentage of their disposable income on energy than they did um, not so long ago, and it's seriously hurting. Uh, and uh, we will have companies going out of business, cutting back investment, cutting back jobs, Many of those companies uh, are in regional areas and I think those problems are going to get worse and they're going to get louder. A question that I thought was interesting from the flyer is did politicisation of energy cause the, the higher prices or indeed in the reverse 
did the higher prices actually bring about the politicisation? Uh, I think there's a bit to be said for the fact that it was the reverse, um, but it's been a mix of both, there's no doubt about that. But certainly many of the causes of uh, higher energy prices, I don't think you can attribute to politicisation, and I might just cover that off as I go through. Uh, and I guess the other point I'd make looking at the uh, overview is how did we ever think we we're going to keep politics out of such an issue as this? Uh, certainly the higher prices is what has brought the politics to it in many ways because every parliamentarian has uh, constituents, both consumers and industry, uh, that are feeling enormous strain from the higher electricity prices. So that definitely brings them into the debate. But it's interesting what's politicisation and what's not. I think very much depends on your perspective. I mean, I could well argue that uh, um, when we got rid of the carbon price and decided that the, the best way to decarbonise was simply through a renewable energy target, uh, that wasn't a decision I would have made, but I could call that politicisation. Uh, but that's probably because I didn't like the decision. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, that's a hard issue to form. So I, I think politicisation sometimes can be a bit in the eye of the beholder. But my last proposition, which is a segue for what I'm going to talk about, is we can't try and address affordability unless we understand what caused uh, the very high prices. And given that our remit is both energy, and, uh, gas and electricity, I'll briefly cover both. And I have my watch here, so I will stick to time. The gas, and the gas story is rather interesting. Uh, it's probably familiar to everybody, but uh, you know, five or six years ago, we ended up with three uh, decisions to, to, to build three LNG projects, $20 billion each. Um, I think anybody associated with all that, and I'm sure Tony would agree, there really should have only been two. Uh, all logic would have suggested two, but we ended up with three. Uh, and we didn't have enough gas to support them. The debate then, when those projects were coming on, was why don't we reserve gas? And governments said, no, we won't reserve gas. Now, there was a lot of political pressure. I think you could argue the there wasn't politicisation of the issue in the sense that the government made the decision not to reserve gas for the domestic market. Whether or not you agree with that is another matter. My point is more that they were following the conventional advice, they were following the advice they got from the bureaucrats. It wasn't a politicised decision in any way, shape or form. They thought they were doing the right thing. Just at the same time as those three projects came on, uh, then both uh, effectively New South Wales and Victoria locked the gate on further gas exploration. And look, everyone here is going to have their own view on that. I'm simply making the point that in the history of the thing in Queensland, unconventional gas got the go-ahead. We had an, just an unbelievable surge in unconventional gas. I think Tony and I, if we went back a certain period of time, would have never thought that was possible. We'd have never thought you'd have the beginnings of an LNG industry. We'd have never thought you'd... You, so, so this just came from nowhere and came quickly. Uh, I think the natural presumption was that unconventional gas, those unconventional gas fines would then go down to uh, New South Wales and Victoria, where there's plenty of unconventional gas, uh, but governments, for whatever reason, uh, uh, decided that they didn't want that 
and Victoria went so far as to stop conventional gas as well, of which there is some, uh, but they've decided they don't want to um, uh, explore for that. Now, the combination has meant that uh, and it is the combination, I think, to be fair. Uh, yes, we had three projects, we should have had two. That, that caused the shortage of gas, but there were projects in train that would have plugged a fair bit of that hole, to be fair to the producers, and those projects were stopped. Uh, again, you can have your own view on that. I'm just giving you a sense of how we got here. But where we are now is a completely dysfunctional market. And the lovely comparison you can do, if you're an industry and you want gas in Western Australia, uh, and you say, please supply me gas, you'll get four or five companies offering you gas at about four or five. Maybe if you're unlucky, $6 a gigajoule. Here, you'll get one company, two of, no, very rarely two. You get one offer, um, and when we wrote our first report in September, uh, the prices were anything from 10 to $16, <laughs> way above export parity price, and 10 to $16 compares to people coming off contracts when they may have been on $4 a gigajoule. So, uh, but dysfunctional in the sense that you're only getting one offer, uh, take it or leave it terms, no negotiation. Once upon a time, you'd have actually negotiated. You'd have said, this is how I want the gas. Uh, do I want a curved load, flat load? What take or pay? Forget it, take it or leave it. Two days to decide, one day to decide. Completely dysfunctional market that, in a sense for many players, came out of the blue, certainly people on three-year contracts. Uh, they got their first contract and had plenty of choices. They went onto the market again and were just hit this brick wall where prices were going up by three or four times and uh, really couldn't get any responses. So that's been a, a huge problem. Of course, the high gas prices flowed into the electricity price. So um, whereas there are countries overseas that are wrestling with various um, issues in the electricity market, but they have the let out that they've got very low gas prices because in most countries of the world, there's a gas glut and they've got very, very low gas prices. In Australia, I'll describe the problems in electricity in a second, but they coincide completely unrelated. I mean, right, there's no, nothing in the electricity market caused the gas problem. The gas problem's its own problem they've come along at the same time and exacerbated the affordability problem. So the gas affordability problem has uh, made the electricity problem a lot worse. So it's a dreadful combination. But I don't think, as I say, any of that, I mean, you can describe some of what I've just said as politicisation. I think people are making decisions that they think are the right decisions and we are where we are. But different people can have different views. Electricity. Uh, prices have gone up by over 60% in real terms over the last 10 years, uh, so that's after inflation. Uh, but that's a complicated number. Um, if you don't have solar panels and you are still on a standing offer, your price has gone up by over 100% in real terms. And one thing we're trying to find out is are, are lower income people disproportionately in that situation? We don't know yet, but we have a suspicion. So why, are electricity, why did electricity prices go up as much as they did? Uh, the key driver was rising network costs. Uh, that started around about 10 years ago. Uh, there were two drivers of rising network costs. One was um, 
governments in my terms, others might use different terms in my terms, deregulating uh, monopoly poles and wires businesses. We had this push to deregulate monopolies, which I've been fighting for the last 10 years and still fighting, but not doing a very good job of it because I'm losing as much as I'm winning. But uh, that's that pushed up network prices quite a lot because it made the job of the Australian energy regulator impossible. They were in a dreadful position uh, trying to restrict price rises with uh, two arms and one leg tied behind their back. Uh, and the other factor was we just had some reliability incidents, uh, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, that just happened for particular reasons, which uh, I could go into, but I won't get through my comments in 15 minutes if I do. Um, they weren't that big incidents. I mean, the one in Sydney was just people got stuck in lifts for a couple of hours in the CBD, and the minister promptly decided that uh, the way to deal with that is to move from N minus one to N minus two reliability in the Sydney CBD. You can imagine what that costs to have a double backup for Sydney CBD. And so um, I personally have no doubt that if you'd have asked the consumers of New South Wales, this is what it's gonna cost, this is the extra reliability you're gonna get, are you up for that? No one would have put their hand up. Similar thing in, uh, in Queensland. So, Network costs contributed 40% of those increases over the last 10 years. Uh, then we had, secondly, higher retail costs and margins, but amazingly a large rise in retail costs, which is something we've got to get to the bottom of. So you've got this deregulated market and it's got a lot of problems uh, with it. Uh, but one strange thing is that the costs of providing electricity, the retail costs have gone up. Uh, retail costs and margins are over 20% of the price of electricity. Sort of interesting, really. I mean, they don't actually do anything to the product, right? I mean, they don't sort of top and tail it or tie a bow around it. It's just what it is. But So why are those costs so high is something we've got to get to the bottom of. But it's, again, um, I don't think it's anything to do with politicisation. Uh, certainly have nothing to do with carbon pricing. Uh, or, or decarbonisation, it, it's got its own issues and we've got to get to the bottom of those and I'll come back to that in the remaining minutes. Uh, then we had the costs of the uh, green schemes, the renewable energy target, the solar feed-in tariffs. Um, they contributed 16% to the increase um, and I personally have been very critical and was at the time of the excessively generous solar feed-in tariffs um, in New South Wales. Uh, they offered you a 60 cent uh, feed-in tariff, which was clearly at least six times the cost of energy. And they gave you that not only on the energy you export to the grid, but also on the energy you consumed yourself. So not only did you get the energy for free, you actually were paid money to consume your own energy. So fortunately, all that's been sorted out, but nonetheless, that increased costs. And lastly, we've got a 17% contribution. So those two things occurred over, re over a number of years. And then most recently in the last year, year and a half, we've had rising generation costs, uh, particularly following the closure of Hazelwood and Northern. So what are we doing in relation to, or what can we do in relation to improving affordability? Uh, it's really the best example of that old Irish joke I can think of, you sure as hell wouldn't start from here, but uh, we have to do something. So on gas, um, we are uh, monitoring through our information notices 
what the LNG players are doing. They've undertaken to the Prime Minister that they will make enough gas available to the domestic market, so we're monitoring that they're doing that. We're staying close to a large number of people who want to buy gas to make sure they can get it on sensible terms. Frankly, we're trying to embarrass people into making sure they do that, which is a weird role for a regulator to play, but that's what we're doing. There's a range of companies that need gas by 1 January 2018, otherwise they have to stop production. Uh, and we're trying to make sure that they get reasonable offers. And we're looking to see whether the problems they're facing are due to um, uh, pipeline costs, retail margins, just not, or, or just the wholesale price of gas or the lack of availability of the gas. The gas issue, um, I mean, fundamentally, the only way you're going to get gas prices down is if we have more gas and more gas supplies. There's just no other way. Um, in the south, for example, and uh, depending where you are in Queensland, but the south means New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, at the moment, the south has combined because Victoria and, south and, and New South Wales are effectively one market for gas, given the way the pipeline system works and its pricing. Um, the combined New South Wales-Victoria is short gas. That means it's got to get it from Queensland and that can often add up to $4 a gigajoule uh, to what the gas would otherwise be priced at. And so either Victoria's go Victoria and New South Wales are going to have to get more gas or they'll end up importing it from overseas, importing LNG from overseas and uh, regasifying it, if that's the term. Uh, now, it's not as dopey as it sounds because the cost of importing it and regasifying it is about what it costs to transport it down from Queensland given the high prices on our gas pipelines. Uh, but that's where we're going to be. So really, um, uh, we need more gas uh, in the south, we need more gas in the north. That's the only essential answer to um, uh, getting our gas prices down. Otherwise, the ACCC is going to be sitting there monitoring every gas transaction to make sure people who've got market power aren't actually using it to get to, to uh, um, uh, force very bad deals on users. That's what we're doing at the moment, but we'd rather not be in that business uh, for the next number of years. So gas, that's, that's where we are with gas. With electricity, we've just got a whole lot of work on to try and see what we can do to get those prices down um, on networks. Uh, we're delighted that the government's got rid of the limited merits review, which I can talk about if anybody wants to later on. Uh, we're trying to think whether the rules under which the networks are regulated can be amended. You've got the whole issue of uh, uh, trying to get cost-reflective pricing, um, thinking about whether you need to or can optimise the asset base, a whole lot of really complex issues that we're trying to think through what practically can be done. On the green side, we're just trying to think about the market power in relation to the PPA market. Um, if you've got a green project and you can provide your own offtake, this is fantastic. There's a number of large energy users who are building particularly solar plants. It's incredibly cheap, uh, really easy for them because they're actually building the plant and their own offtaker. If all you're doing is building the plant, you've got to sell it essentially to three players to get a power purchase agreement and take it off your hands. And that is a fairly 
that, that's where there's a certain amount of market power. On the retail side, uh, we're again following up what the Prime Minister did in terms of get undertakings from the retailers to get people off these high standing offers. I mean, we really do have a mess of a retail market. There's no doubt about that. Um, you've got a lot of people on standing offers uh, or default offers that are really high. So if you're not doing much about your energy, uh, if you haven't rung up your retailer in the last couple of years and demanded a better deal, I'm afraid you're paying way much more than you need to. This is one of those markets where the more loyal you are to the retailer, the more you're paying. There is a one-to-one -one relationship there. Uh, and uh, so trying to work, I mean, they've undertaken to the Prime Minister that they'll get a range of people off those offers and our job is to make sure that they do that and see how we can enhance that happening. But there's hundreds of dollars to be saved in, in getting people off those high offers because they are hundreds of dollars more per year than they need to be. Uh, and we're also trying to see how we can make the market work better. Um, there is a confusing raise, array of offers. You ring up your retailer, they say, oh, well, if you badger me, yes, I'll give you a 20% discount. You still have no idea what it's 20% off. So uh, and our analysis showed that you could compare a whole range of offers and sometimes there can be an inverse relationship between the size of the discount you've offered and ultimately what you end up paying. So that is a seriously bad market. Are the companies making it deliberately confusing or did it just turn out that way? I think the former, but uh, I'm a cynic. That's the business I'm in. Uh, and on the generation side, um, we are looking at the exercise of market power in the generation market. Um, that's a bit like the dog chasing the car, though. If we actually <laughs> find there's a lot of market power, we're then going to work out what to do about it. But uh, one thing at a time. Uh, obviously, lower gas prices would help get generation prices down. One thing we're looking at is can we get um, remove any barriers to uh, particularly commercial industrial customers self-supplying. I've met about at least 50 commercial industrial customers in electricity. I don't think I can remember one that isn't thinking about some form of self-supply, ranging from solar panels on their roof to, hey, I've got a block of land outside, I might put up a solar some sort of bunch of solar panels. They're finding difficulties and we've got some buying groups where companies get together uh, who are finding it difficult to, I mean, there's the buying groups who want to buy a lot of energy. There's renewable energy suppliers or, or, or complete uh, people wanting to make a complete offer of uh, a bit of renewable, a bit of cogen, a bit of batteries who want to supply them, but they're having trouble getting together for a range of uh, credit and other issues which we're trying to work our way through and see whether we can help that work. That, of course, uh, would be a great outcome if we can do that. So a lot to be done. Uh, I do think we can get energy prices down, particularly electricity prices, a bit over the coming year. Getting them back where they need to be is going to take a little bit longer than that. Thanks, Tony. Um, that 15 minutes or so, so you've got about another year to fix all the energy system. I think that's about right. No, um, the affordability. I'm, st I'm fascinated by the idea that at least twice, if not three times, you made the point that the way that we're solving the problem at the moment is the businesses make undertakings to the Prime Minister. 
they promised they'll fix it, right? So we'll see how that goes. Um, that's the way we develop policy in this country. I suspect we've got a problem. Um, look, I, I should introduce Kerry Shot just a little bit because some of you may not be aware of the background that uh, parachuted Kerry into this role as the chair of the Energy Security Board. One of the key recommendations from the Finkel Review of the um, national electricity market's uh, security coming out of the problems that occurred in South Australia, particularly the blackout on September the 28th last year, was an issue about the way the existing um, Coag Energy Council, which is the overarching body of the federal, state and territory ministers, and the market agencies, the ones who operate the market, regulate the market uh, and so on, actually function together. And there was a very strong view come out of that work that they didn't function all that well. And if we were seriously going to implement the recommendations of the Finkel Review, the Finkel Blueprint that is, then we needed a body to take respons direct responsibility for the implementation of the Blueprint. And that's what Alan, Alan recommended, or at least his panel recommended, um, the Energy Security Board. Um, the Energy Security Board consists of Kerry as independent chair, a lady by the name of Claire Savage, who is the uh, independent deputy chair, and then the heads of those three bodies, the market commission, the market operator, and the market regulator. Um, to some extent, people might have thought that was going to be a bit of a doddle, really, because Finkel's done all the hard work. We just have to do what he said. But then along came the problem that um, one part of one of the 50 recommendations of the Finkel Review um, the government federally was choking on, and um, Kerry and her team came up with a solution to help unchoke the, um, the process. And so we now have what is called the National Energy Guarantee, and that came out of a key recommendation from the ESB, Energy Security Board, to the government. So that will be an area that one area obviously focusing Kerry's attention on how the ESB can contribute to fixing the mess, and Kerry, I'm sure, will tell us the rest of the story. Kerry, please. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm surprised that there are so many people without better things to do. Um, <laughs> but thanks for being here. It's um, certainly a very interesting time in the electricity industry, and um, what I thought I'd do is just tell you what the Energy Security Board's been focused on. And as um, Tony just said, um, our main role is actually to implement uh, the Finkel recommendations. And he, he and his panel made 50. And I should say that uh, Chloe Munro is here tonight who was on Alan's panel and can no doubt tell you more about it than I can. But... Um, Strangely, um, the Energy Council, which is a COAG body, and my experience with COAG is it's very rarely that they agree about anything. This is uh, the state governments trying to get them all in one place about anything, has a history of getting nowhere. Um, they all agreed to 49 recommendations out of 50, and the one that they didn't agree on was the clean energy target, which, as Tony mentioned, the Commonwealth <coughs> Government just really couldn't get its head around. And all of you would be very aware of the disputes within the coalition government about anything to do with carbon or renewable energy or anything like that. So it's a bit like Voldemort in Harry Potter. There's a lot of things in this space that you dare not say its name. And the clean energy target is one of them. 
Um, the emissions intensity scheme is another. Um, and so what we've come up with is called neither of those things. <laughs> and don't ever use the word. And um, what it is, is um, a reliability obligation on retailers and also an emissions reduction obligation. And I'll just run through what both of those things mean and why I'm optimistic that this week at, at the Energy Council, um, and I'm more optimistic than Tony about sorting this out, that we will get um, the go-ahead to go away and do some more work and just work out in detail how this is going to work. So what's been, I might just take a step back and just explain what's been happening in the, um, in the electricity system. And um, South Australia was a very interesting uh, wake-up call um, on a number of fronts. And the way that the politicians are carrying on about South Australia, you would think that, that they had brought all this on themselves and um, that they're all a bunch of lunatics um, and into renewable energy and nothing else. Um, what actually happened in South Australia was an extremely severe storm and it was always going to knock out some parts of the state. But what happened was that there was a statewide blackout, which when you sort of look at it, probably shouldn't have occurred that way. But the operator has been having extraordinarily difficulty um, keeping the grid stable. And uh, the way, I'm not, I'm not an engineer or a physicist, but I know enough to be dangerous now. The, the, way that the, the way that the system um, basically works is that with electricity, you basically have to keep your frequency between a very, uh, between a range. And in Australia, the range we work on is actually quite a wide range compared to what the rest of the world work on. But if you get your frequency oscillating outside that range and it doesn't converge back, uh, you've got a real trouble. And that is what happened when you might remember New York and the grid over there lost power. Um, in South Australia, there was a bit of a version of that and New South Wales went through the same thing on, I think it was the 10th of February this year, um, when fortunately the frequency stabilised again, but it was more good luck than good management. And what's happening with operations is that with um, a lot of renewables in the system that are intermittent, like solar and wind, they can just suddenly stop. So you can get an overcast weather event or you can just have your wind stop and that particular source of power stops, which means you are going to have an unstable grid and you're going to lose electricity everywhere on that grid. So to stop that happening, what you need is power that you can immediately bring on, so dispatchable power. And it's either batteries, which uh, the big battery bank that the South Australians are currently putting in actually provides power for about half an hour. It's not going to solve their um, dramas overnight, for example, when the sun's not shining. But it does enable you to have half an hour to be able to, say, get your diesel motors turned on or get your gas plants turned on. So you have to have an array of different types of power plant that you can bring on and dispatch. 
And the thing that we had before in Australia, before, and this is, a, I, I should say before I go on, this is a problem that the entire developed world is grappling with at the moment as we all try to reduce our carbon emissions. And in the electricity industry, which is a big carbon emitter, as you bring your emissions reduction down, you've really got to make sure that you've got dispatchable power uh, for those periods when the renewables are not there to be dispatched. And the dispatchable power can be batteries, it can be pumped hydro, it can be gas, and it can be coal. You're allowed to speak about coal. It's not in the Voldemort category generally. Um, but all of these um, uh, things you need to keep your system stable. This is new for Australia relatively because um, for a while we only had a small amount of renewables and we've got a power grid that's still got a lot of dispatchable resources in it, particularly in Queensland, which has still got a lot of coal plant. Victoria and New South Wales still have a lot of coal plant, but their um, percentage of intermittent renewables is going up. We're blessed as two states that have got the Snowy Hydro scheme in between us, and it's a very um, stable scheme, and it um, can be used to dispatch. And uh, South Australia has neither of those things, and when they lost the northern coal plant, uh, their amount of dispatchable energy became very tight. So what's currently happening is that the operator, um, and AEMO will tell you this, practically every weekend at the moment, they are ordering plant to come on. So they're overriding the market, and they're saying to generators, you come on now, and when they do that within the market, that generator gets paid the top top price. It's a very expensive way of maintaining stability in the grid. So um, it's not efficient. There's power sitting there, but as, as Rod's just explained, um, in the South Australian event, the uh, Pelican Point gas plant didn't have any gas because it was so expensive it hadn't been buying it. So when they were, look, the operator said to them, come on, they said, well, we're out of here, it's not us. Um, we've got no gas. So they are now in a position where they've been ordered to get gas and the operator can say to them at the weekend, we want you on and they will be there. So the issue that the so-called um, National Energy Guarantee, which is none of the things that I mentioned earlier that you're not allowed to talk about, um, what it's trying to do is make sure that we've got reliability in the, in the system so we've got enough dispatchable power. So what, we're, what we are suggesting is that the retailers who every day put together a certain amount of load for their customers and they have contracts that, to provide that load, we're saying to them, when you get your load together, you must make sure <clears throat> at every interval of the day, you've got a certain amount of dispatchable power. Now, if you're in Queensland, you probably don't have to worry about that because there's so much coal plant still up there, it's not an issue for them. If you're in South Australia, you do have to worry about it and you will go looking around to get new dispatchable power and you will sign contracts with people who will then, in due course, go out and build 
um, either gas or do things to their wind turbines to make them um, keep spinning for a while after the wind has stopped or put in batteries or just do something to make sure they've got that dispatchable amount. The other thing that we're saying to the retailers is you must also meet an emissions obligation. Now, everybody knows uh, in the industry what the energy intensity of each of the generators are. So if you're putting a load together and you've got contracts with different sorts of generators, you know, and you know now actually, what the intensity is of that load that you've put together. Now, Australia, um, under Tony Abbott of all people, um, signed <coughs> the Paris Agreement. And that Paris Agreement has made an obligation internationally that we will get our emissions down to a particular level which is related back to what they were in 2005. And the electricity industry provides about a third of those um, carbon uh, emissions that we need to get down. So you can work out what the number is that the electricity industry needs to get to by 2030, which is when the Paris Agreement relates to. So you work that out, and then in each, um, in each state, uh, was actually right across the national electricity market, you can work out what the emissions intensity reduction needs to be, and you can say to the retailers putting their load together, you have got to get to this particular level by such and such a date, and we will set that target probably annually, and it will be, um, if you like, a minimum target that we've got to meet to be able to meet our Paris agreements. Now, Australia's got a very long and proud record, actually, of meeting its international obligations, and there is generally no quibbles in the Commonwealth Parliament about the fact that you must meet those obligations. So that's a political way through what is otherwise a minefield, because everybody wants to argue about what level of renewable energy we should have. Well, there's an answer, which is the minimum you must have is to meet the Paris Agreement. So that's the minimum. So that's basically what is in the National um, Electricity Guarantee, which uh, the Commonwealth Government is proposing and has had us do various modelling on and so on. Now, at a state level, we've got a situation where many state governments would like to have um, renewable targets that are more challenging than that. Uh, Victoria would prefer to have an energy target that's more challenging. Um, South Australia would prefer to do that. Queensland is just planning on putting a lot of solar in and they are planning energy targets that currently are more challenging than the Paris Agreement. Now, if state governments want to do that under our mechanism, they can do that. And the the um, federal government is well aware of that and their backbench are well aware of that. But there's a but to this because if you're a state government and you want to put your renewables target up, then it means that there's a matching increase in your reliability requirement. Because if you've got many more renewables that are likely to go off if it's raining or if the sun's not shining or if there's no wind, then you've got to have more dispatch. So that means that if you're in a state where the government wants to be particularly ambitious about renewable energy, you are going to have to bear the cost of possibly additional 
um, dispatch. Now, the thing about the so-called national electricity market is it's actually not very national. It's, um, it's, it stretches from Queensland through to South Australia and across to Tasmania, but the connections between the states are in some cases very thin wires and you can't get too much electricity moving across the interconnectors. So a lot of the national uh, features of the market are constrained by the interconnectors. And that's another issue for South Australia. If they had thicker connections into Victoria or New South Wales, they would be able to ship more wind this way and they would be able to take more dispatchable power back the other way. So one of the things that we'll be looking at in due course is grid planning. And there are zones in the country that are terrific for renewables. And that's where, in the longer term, you'd want your transmission grid to be not running from um, the Latrobe Valley or the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, which is where all the old coal plants are. And that's what the transmission lines have been built around. So um, that's sort of uh, where we are. It's actually quite state-based. There are differences in prices between the states that are quite marked. Um, and that is reflective in part of the renewables and also the dispatchable part. Now, strangely, the economics of all of this is that the price of renewables has been falling rapidly. It's falling in terms of the cost to put them in, both wind and solar uh, and batteries. Um, but what's also, uh, and that, it, that will really drive as much as any targets we set, I think, the amount of new plant going in. And there's over 4,000 megawatts of plant committed and going in, and all of them are intermittent renewables. There hasn't been any plans um, actually sort of financed and banked for new gas or new coal or indeed um, the much um, vaunted Snowy 2 of the current government. And we do need more dispatchable power coming into the system. And what the uh, National Energy Guarantee does is in due course as we need those dispatchables, it will cause contracts to be put in place which will in turn allow them to be financed. So it's a technology neutral thing. If you can find some way that's dispatchable, uh, doesn't cause carbon emissions, go for your life because you're going to meet both targets and you will be much sought after like um, hydropower, for example. Um, or if somebody finally um, finds the holy grail of uh, burning coal and it doesn't put out carbon emissions, then, you know, excellent. Um, but uh, if somebody finds a way to keep um, wind going uh, at least for a while when it's actually not blowing and keep turbines going, that's excellent too. So there's a lot of technology in the market that will help with this, just little things. Uh, there are things that do help with keeping turbines spinning after the wind stopped uh, instead of just tripping off straight away. And um, the other thing that is happening, I'll just speak briefly about technology and then I'll stop. There's an enormous amount of new technology coming in in distributed resources. And Rod referred to the, um, what, the rooftop solar, basically. Uh, the amount of rooftop solar has gone up from next to nothing um, to just... Um, it's now providing 3% of all the electricity in the market. 
Um, it's all behind the meter, so it's actually um, been a bit of a data hunt for the regulator to find out what's going on. Um, and if you've got solar on your house, and many of you may well do, the chances are at the moment you probably don't have a battery, but the installation of batteries is starting to pick up very rapidly. And the other thing that's happening is that intermediary firms are starting to form that put um, rooftop solar together so they become quite a marketable batch. And they can then use that um, community to do things like control fridges and pool pumps and stuff that not necessarily important whether it's on at peaks or not, um, particularly uh, appliances like pool pumps. And you can get enormous efficiencies in household use doing this. But it's something that if you just do it on your own, it's not all that helpful, but if you're in a community of distributed resources, it's really uh, going to be quite powerful. Um, so one of the things that we want to do is make sure that people that can offer demand response um, times um, get some benefit out of it. So that's, that, that's basically what we've been focused on, and it's been important because the thing that has stopped investment in this market has been the uncertainty around what the governments are going to do about emissions reduction. And I think we've found a mechanism, fingers crossed, that everybody, if they just stopped throwing rocks at each other for a moment or two, could actually find their way through a solution. It's not something that for any state or federal government is impossible to live with. And I think it meets um, everybody's um, political purposes, if I can put it like that. And it's a debate which I must say just gets ferocious and fierce and very quickly loses rationality. And I think it's very important for people to stop arguing about what the target ought to be, and we've all got very strong private views about this, but if we argue forever about what the target should be, we're never going to get anything in that is actually going to let us meet any target whatsoever, including um, Paris, which some of you might think is pretty de minimis. So. Um, if we just get this mechanism in, then we can take it from there and everybody can set their own trajectory and away we go. Um, the other thing we've been doing is working on a paper on the health of the uh, national electricity market, which, as I've just explained to you, has, hasn't been as reliable as it should be and, as Rod's been explaining, is certainly not as affordable as it should be. So, at the moment, it's failing on a number of fronts. Um, but it's, um, um, there are a lot of things being done to make it better. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. I think it's um, from some of the work we've done, no one, as Kerry said, everyone in the developed world and many countries in the developing world, rapidly developing economies, is grappling, are grappling with the same issue. I think it's the first time anyone's really tried to integrate energy and climate policy in the way that um, the energy is intended to do. Um, so um, I think it is an opportunity to make some real progress. Um, now, the final member of our panel is Michael Breer. Michael is the head of the Melbourne Energy Institute, our partner in running these events, and he will now make some comments in relation to this, this, uh, this topic, and um, we'll move from there. Thanks, Michael. So I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, can we fix this energy mess? 
Uh, yes. Uh, well, great slide, <laughs> great slide. Yeah, the professor says they can do it. Great. Um, but it's going to be a concerted, long campaign and wickedly complex in many of the details. And that's very hard to do that. Get your homework done while your mum and dad are yelling at each other the whole time. But we can do it. We can do it. So first thing I just want to say, why renewables... <laughs> Why renewables should not go away, regardless of policy. I just want to talk about that, and I'll get into policy, and I'll, then I'll wrap it up, and we'll have a more a broader discussion. Let's define the cost of abatement. This is sorry to give you an equation. I've got to give you one. I'm an academic, and I'm an engineer at that. So, um, tons per uh, dollars per ton. So the, the, you can find that as well. The cost of doing something new, dollars per megawatt hour, relative to doing something old. And we'll say that something old is a brown coal power station. Right? We've got plenty. Or, one fewer of those in Victoria that we used to have. And then the uh, abatement is the uh, 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 dollars or tonnes of avoided of that new thing relative to the tonnes of CO2 that we had with the old thing. And I'm deliberately going to have a hard test here, which is what's called the SRMC, the operating cost of a brown coal power station, which is the cheapest form of generation right now. Now, some of you might not agree with that, but it's dirt and we burn it in a paid-off thing. You can probably do it for two or three cents a kilowatt hour. I don't think we're quite there yet on some of the solar, but we're not too far off it. Anyway, this is a hard test. Let's consider, and this is old, oldish data, I, I grant you that, and this, the argument I'm putting forward, though, is only more true since I first developed this graph. Let's consider the cleanest fossil plant and the cleanest renewable plant. Combined cycle gas, turbine and wind. Uh, and then we have our graph here on the right. The yellow line at the bottom is what I would call a good wind investment. That is one that was uh, cheap to build in a lovely blowy location, right? Low capex, high capacity factor. And the red line is a bad wind investment that is a more expensive one to build in a less blowy location. And then I've got the blue line, which is the cost of abatement. So I've got those two flat costs of abatement because obviously the cost of abatement is invariant for gas, with gas price for a wind farm because it doesn't use any gas. And then I've got this blue line going up, which is saying, why, why would I, what's the cost of abatement of a CCGT? I've got to build it and then I've got to fuel it with gas versus the gas price. And obviously that goes up linearly with gas price. Now, now if we had any abatement policy, let's go back to a cap and trade scheme or an economy-wide carbon price and we say, okay, um, what carbon price do I need to have before I would shut down that brown coal power station and replace it with something else, either a wind thing or a gas thing, okay? And you see that my good wind investment uh, has a lower cost of abatement than a gas plant, provided the gas price is below about $6 a gigajoule, right? That's a few, that's a, th these numbers are a few years uh, old. That yellow line is down even lower now, but probably not too much lower. Now, current gas prices, as, as Rod said, are north of 10 bucks a gigajoule, even for a big, a big user, right? So right now, the cheapest way of achieving abatement is through building renewable plant. Not the cheapest way of generating electricity, it, it, it can be in certain situations, but the cheapest way of achieving abatement right now is through building renewable plant. I didn't say the cheapest way of achieving system security or reliability, but abatement. So any good abatement policy will incentivise renewables over alternatives if reduced <coughs> greenhouse gas emissions is the sole objective. 
Any good policy will do that. Now, I think there are many ways to skin a cat. We've, this is a, a study that we've done, I said it's a couple of years old now, uh, where we actually worked out what we think the cheapest ways to achieve abatement are, and we had all these trajectories and we built this and we shut down that, and lots of people do this kind of stuff. When we finished it, we said, okay, what if we replace that abatement target with a, an extended renewable energy target out to mid-century? They said, what's the cheapest way to build renewables? And we put the two renewable builds from time in, in terms of generated energy versus year, and we find that for the next 10 plus years, we build the same amount of renewable energy if we're choosing to minimise emissions optimally, that is at least cost, securely, reliably, or build an equivalent amount of renewable energy at least cost securely and reliably. In this case, it was an 80% abatement by 2050 or an 80% renewable energy target by 2050. And they start to diverge in this analysis when the system security and reliability constraints really start to bind. So I will talk about several policies and why there are many ways to skin a cat. What we think this kind of result's saying is that equivalent rents, carbon prices, EISs, sets, NEGs, whatever, should result in much the same thing if they are efficient, efficient policies and security is maintained. Because renewables are cheap. They're cheap abatement. So, is security important? Yes. Uh, this is a report that we submitted to Chloe and Alan and uh, a couple of other people. I've, got, I've gone blank, Chloe, but uh, uh, a few months ago. Um, written by my colleague, lead author, my colleague, Pierluigi Mancarella, Power System Security Assessment of the Future National Electricity Market. Now, we were asked by the panel to look at what was called uh, uh, frequency response adequacy, because when we put in renewable plant, these, these big wind and solar in particular, or little solar as well, uh, they don't have inertia, which we've talked about. And so some people are saying, well, is that an issue? Will, we, will security be compromised? Um, and we went off and worked pretty hard, and we came back with essentially two points. First is, without implementation of appropriate operational measures, the NEM will experience increasing issues of frequency control in all modelled scenarios. I'll put that bold in for tonight. In all modelled scenarios, including business as usual, let alone, you know, that is with no abatement target, through to increasingly aggressive abatement targets. So we, we, we will have increasing issues of, of uh, uh, security. This is a report to, you know, to an august panel of in, independent review, so it's all very conservative and, 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 and careful. We are having issues and we're going to have more. That's what that, that jargon's saying. Now, second point is we said that there is significant potential to use several operational measures, demand response, for example, uh, and electricity market <coughs> designs to ensure frequency response adequacy in these VRE, variable renewable uh, uh, energy rich power systems. Uh, so, so there are ways to change the way the market operates, the way it's planned, the way you know, demand response, unit commitment and other things that can help address these issues. So there are solutions out there, and indeed many of those solutions are already implemented in other markets around the world. So what should we do now? I think it's really important for all of us, certainly leading up to Friday's uh, meeting, is to remember that 49 of 50 Finkel recommendations were rapidly adopted by COAG. 
So, so we might think that mum and dad are arguing all the time while we're doing homework. Well, actually, 98% of the time, they agreed. Within two weeks of the report being handled down, two or three weeks, a month, sorry, <laughs> uh, rapidly, in terms of, 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 of the history <coughs> of reviews going to more than one government, or at least one government, let alone more than one government. So let's just remember that and say, well done, Team Australia. Let's be optimistic. Well done, Team Australia. Well done, COAG. 98%. That's a high H1 at Melbourne University. <laughs> I, I never got one of those when I was a student. So second thing, design and implement an efficient abatement policy related to the Finkel 50th, the set that, that, uh, that, that the report said, that accommodates system security. That is the Finkel 1 to 49, right? So let's make that last 2% uh, bipartisan as well. Sorry, before I go into that, and remember there are more than one way to skin a cat because you're gonna build more renewables because that's sensible, but we have to redesign operations to accommodate that. Third thing, let's remember that these reforms are urgent and also need to be robust to stronger abatement. Uh, these problems are not going away and this is no longer a, a point scoring exercise, it's certainly no longer an academic exercise, this is a real problem which is impacting us uh, uh, increasingly and will impact us more if we don't do something about it. And then finally, get on with solving other issues at the same time, particularly wholesale market natural gas pricing, network costs, and one other thing which we forget, which is peculiar about the Australian energy debate, and that is the two-thirds of national greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. that come from outside the electricity sector. Uh, and that's me done. Thank you. Okay, so there's <clears throat> more than enough substance to talk about, I am sure. Um, and each of the three panellists have come at the fair questions from slightly <coughs> different perspectives, which is obviously quite valuable. I guess I'd be, just while you're thinking about the questions you'd like to raise and the points you might want to make, I'd sort of just ask one, one question, and that is, let's assume that um, Kerry's glorious optimism is far more um, realistic than my terrible pessimism. Um, and we get agreement on Friday that um, we will pursue the National Energy Guarantee. Um, I should, in the, in the sense of completing my pessimism for this evening, point out that I don't think the states actually signed up to the other 49 actually at all. I think there's a whole lot of those which are still going to be problematic when Kerry gets into the detail, but we'll leave that for another event next year. Um, let's assume that we do get agreement, that the, this issue of matching reliability and emissions reduction um, is agreed. And um, arguably the, that process will deliver an outcome at lowish cost. You can debate whether it's the lowest cost, but that depends upon your version of forecast. Is that does that somehow solve the problem? Um, are we now therefore on the road, uh, are, we, are we then on the yellow brick road or do you think we have um, other, what are, the, what are going to be the key challenges ahead as we try and address what many people have called the energy trilemma, but for some reason the Prime Minister calls it the trifecta and given we've just finished the spring racing carnival, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with the idea of a trifecta. But anyway, let's assume that we, is that, are we then, is that that's all that's left and we just, we just have to do it? Or where do you see the, 
there may be significant challenges ahead to be able to um, produce an outcome which balances those three in a way that's acceptable, um, both from a community, industry, and political perspective. And um, Kerry, do you want to start with that? There's a lot of um, detail to be worked out um, with the reliability and emissions obligation, and I'll go into that a little bit, but it's not going to fix anything. It's about uh, just getting enough volume of dispatchable power as well as getting our emissions down, but there are also um, things that need to be attended to to get security in the system. Um, and. Um, the operator is sort of thinking about whether or not they need a day ahead market, which tends to send the industry into a bit of a frisson. So we need to just run through that. Um, we need to work out how to make demand response work much better. Um, so there are things around the side that are very important that we need to do. But with the um, energy guarantee itself, one of the main things about that is defining exactly what it does mean. We all know the definition of emissions intensity and I think the way to get that to work is reasonably straightforward because um, the clean energy regulator has already done a lot of work in that space and we know what we're measuring and we know where we are. Um, with reliability, we need to work out precisely in industry terms what we mean and do we just mean at one end having power to dispatch so when we need it we can push a button and it's there uh, which is a bit like having enough capacity or do we mean as well having fast frequency response or also having stuff that will come on in half an hour at what what's how are we slicing that, slicing and dicing it and then when we've got that worked out, we then need to work out how to implement this. And that means working out how the regulator is going to monitor it and what the compliance regime is going to be. And we've been doing some preliminary work on that and discussing it with industry players and traders. Um, and I think, I think there's a way through, but we're not, we're not there yet. And that's I don't think we'll get approval this week um, in my wildest dreams, but I'm hopeful that we will get a tick to go and do more work. And that's, that's what we need to do. I mean, no one can approve this at the moment because it's really, I think it's a, it's a good idea, but, and, and it's an idea that'll get us through the political mire, but it's not functional yet. Sure, okay. And Rod, you mentioned the point that you feel at times with the, 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 the issue of market power and concentration and so forth, that you're chasing this, I'm not sure whether it's a car or a truck and you might actually catch it. Um, if Kerry puts the brakes on in front of you really rapidly and implements this program, and we do actually see one of the consequences people are worried about, and Kerry's raised as well, an increased challenge in market concentration. Is that a major obstacle to the sort of things you were talking about, or are, are there other things that would, are going to be critical to work through some of those half a dozen things you mentioned that we're going to try and bring prices down? Yeah, well, look, I, I do get um, amused by the debate that you can hear sometimes that if only we'd sort out um, uh, an NEG or a CET, it's just like there's a lever on the wall. If we sort it out, then affordability is addressed, which, of course, is completely ridiculous, um, given that 40% of the cost of, 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 of 
the affordability problem is network costs. Now, the NEG's not going to help network costs. Indeed, it's quite an interesting issue. I mean, you, you strand the transmission assets to the coal-fired fields and you need new transmission assets elsewhere. If we don't deal with the asset base, you're going to have more network costs, not less. So yeah, that's a problem. Um, uh, it's not going to do anything about retail costs. Uh, the fact that we've got this very high retail component of our bills, I don't think it's going to do anything about that. Um, I guess it makes it more complicated. No, I, don't, I mean, it's just not going to, it just doesn't deal with that. And then, of course, you've got this other issue that talks about an investment strike, and I really like hearing the three main generators say, look, just, just let us get at it, let us get at it. We just love to invest so we can reduce our profits. That's really what we'd love to do. <laughs> what? Because, I mean, they're making, I mean, you know, AGL is the biggest coal-fired power generator in the country. It's making more money than it's made forever. Origin, I mean, the, the wholesale prices are high. They sort of doubled. This is fantastic if you're a coal-fired, if you're any generator, particularly a coal-fired generator. And so the idea that they're just busting to invest to lower those prices so they lower their profits, it's just, you know, I mean, I just think we just need to sort of think about this a bit. So it's a separate issue to um, the one you're asking, but they're just separate problems. I mean, it's the... One thing I learned across the road when I was doing economics here a long time ago, that for each objective you need an instrument and uh, the idea that one instrument is going to solve all the problems is just silly. Uh, so we've got to afford a bit. I mean, that's in a sense why if there's any logic to the way this has been done. I mean, there's a crossover between what the NEG and what Kerry's dealing with and what the is dealing with. There's definitely a crossover, but it's not a big crossover. Um, uh, there's a separate affordability issue that's got to get addressed. And I don't, I mean, the, whatever else the NEG does, it, its contribution is a bit, but there's a bigger. If you're going to deal with affordability, you've got way more issues to deal with. So, no, it's not going to, you've got much more to do. Indeed. I mean, sometimes you look at the claims that politicians make around, well, this, this thing we're going to do is going to save $100, this is going to save 300 this is going to save 400 But the time they're finished, we'll actually be paid to consume electricity if you believe all those promises. It just doesn't. There's some, there is a small problem, I think, with credibility, both from a political perspective and also from, a, from the industry perspective. I think you're right. Michael, in terms of, does this solve, does the energy solve the problem you were talking about in relation to the bit that's not there yet? Or is, there, is it more complicated than that? Uh, well, I... Uh, Get out, stand and get out close for academics is it's, it's more complicated than that, but is it good enough? Um, so I want to separate the abatement target from the reliability mm -hmm. um, matter. And Kerry yeah, yeah. eloquently did so. So, so um, I mean, crew, roughly speaking, the, the, the dispatchable stuff provides that system security and reliability service. So it's a fundamental difference from previous policies and it is both a security and reliability policy and an abatement policy put together. The carbon price right through to the set wasn't that. Um, so so uh, if, you, if you're happy with the abatement target, then the dispatchable stuff goes a long way towards addressing that issue. So, so it seems to me in principle a, a sound thing that you know, certainly should be investigated further. But as Kerry said, it hasn't been fully examined, issues of market power and other things. Let's 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 promulgate it and look at it properly. Okay, okay. So there's um, a number of issues that have already been raised, and I'm sure there'll be things you want to talk about. So let's, um, rather than us talk amongst ourselves, why don't we start with some 
some questions, and I think there was one right over here. Um, and if you could just um, identify yourself and your organisation. Hi, my name is Lance Hodge. I'm with Oakley Greenwood Consulting Firm. Um, question is for Kerry. You mentioned that you recognise that there are lots of different ways that uh, reliability could be defined, and then even once you've done that, you've got, well, once you've done that, you have to then decide how you will determine compliance. And my question is whether you've been thinking about whether the compliance will be settled up prospectively on the basis of contracts put forward, or whether it will actually be done retrospectively and the relative costs and advantages of each approach? Um, what we've been thinking about is that it should um, only be judged at the point of dispatch. So what the, um, um, what the operator, well, first of all, um, the market commission sets a standard of um, reliability. So there's a standard that the whole system's supposed to be operating at, but that's sort of like a design standard. Um, the operator then, um, every, um, uh, about in the forecasting work that they do about two or three years out, suggests um, where there's likely to be dispatch shortages or um, emissions, um, reduction shortages, if I can put it like that. Um, but let's just focus on reliability. If the, if, if the operator sort of says in their forecast sort of two or three years out, it looks like we're going to be short of dispatch in this region, then that's basically sending signals to companies that um, there's an investment opportunity here because what the reliability obligation does is it provides a, a contracted cash flow to somebody to meet that if it's required. So you'll get some signals, but then I think the compliance really needs to be at the point of dispatch. So let's say the forecast is right and there is a shortage and then it's sort of met. By the time it's needed to be dispatched, it should be there or at least covered. Um, and what we've been focusing on is just um, focusing on the compliance in an actual sense. So some signals and then um, actually, and then if you can't comply, the operator will find some reserves to dispatch because that's their job, but it's going to be extremely expensive as it is in South Australia at the moment, at weekends. And um, the company that hasn't been meeting it will get basically charged that amount for being short. And it can amount to millions of dollars very quickly. So there'll be um, incentives for them to get it right. There are, I think, Lance, there are other countries that have done similar sorts of things and hopefully we'll be in position, as Kerry said, as we design this, to learn from those other countries. I okay. should just say as a follow-up that um, Rod's work on competitive markets is very important for this because we do need competitive uh, and liquid contract markets for this to work well and the, um, um, the contract markets have been not liquid uh, recently. Yeah. Okay. Simon, Simon Hemsicourt speaking. Um, 
yesterday the AMC, AMC's reliability panel reported and said that the reliability settings in the network are fine and that re, uh, regulatory stability was very important. So one arm of the AMC has said that the reliability target is unnecessary. On the no, other, that's not what they said. I'm, okay, I would be interested to hear how you read that different. Um, <coughs> and um, and even the ESB's modelling says we only need 800 megawatts or so of dispatchable generation over the next 13 years, which in itself is quite small. Um, on the other hand, most, if not all, experts agree that the NEGS emissions target is not sufficient to meet our Paris agreements. So if we don't have a reliability problem, and if the NEG doesn't solve the emissions problem, can we be forgiven into thinking that the NEG is first and foremost a political instrument? Um, yeah. <laughs> No, you shouldn't. You should. You shouldn't think that. What the um, let me. What the AMC said about What the reliability panel said, and I email agrees with them actually, is that there's no particular reason to think that we can't meet that reliability standard over the next few years, um, and indeed out quite some period. But that's a standard that's not a, That's not the operating standard on a minute-by-minute minute, minute basis so that it doesn't mean that at some half-hour period um, in 42 degrees in Adelaide uh, there's going to be dispatchable power without the operator directing a generator to come on and provide it. So it doesn't mean that. So it's a, you've got, it's, there's a difference between the operational requirement and the standard requirement measured over a lengthier period of time. So it's sort of like, yes, on average we think we're okay, but we, but then the operator knows that there are gonna be periods when it is not okay at all. So um, th that point, on the point about um, the, uh, the NEG not meeting um, the emissions standard, can I just make it very clear that whatever the emissions standard is that is set, it is something that is set by government. It's not something that the Energy Security Board's setting. Um, we all have personal views about it, um, but uh, it is a, it's up to governments to decide this. The Commonwealth Government we have at the moment um, has an obligation to meet Paris. So it has defined what I mentioned earlier is effectively a minimum standard. Other governments in this country have more challenging views about it. And the thing about the design of the NEG is that they can still within that framework set their own standard. And in Victoria, for example, if they want to go for 40 or 50%, you can do that, but the... Um, the corollary, and this is just a rule of physics, it's nothing else. If you're going to have 50% intermittent renewables, you're going to need more reliable dispatch. It's just, otherwise your system is just not going to work. So that's all. Can I just okay. a little bit there? So that 0.002% that Simon's talking about, nice to see you, Simon, um, uh, is a planning requirement. So that's, that's <coughs> what, you know, I, I agree with Kerry there. Operations is a different story. That's something that uh, when you work out what you think you need over the next year, that's fine. You might have a very sunny, you might have a very hot, you might have a very blowy or not a very blowy year. 
it turns out. So you've got to separate those two. Um, our own work for the Finkel Review said we, we, we will have issues of system security in the next three to five years, if not before, even under business as usual. Yeah. And, you know, AEMO is currently intervening in the South Australian market. <coughs> They're not doing that for fun to raise electricity prices for South Australians. They're doing it for, for, for issues of system security and therefore reliability as well. So, so there are issues out there already and we're trying to get our way through it. I need um, to fill you in on a very well-kept secret and that is that there's actually not much difference on emissions reduction between the NEG and the Clean Energy Target and the Emissions Intensity Scheme, provided they all link to meet the same Paris target, whatever the target is, as, as um, Kerry has said. They could all be adjusted. The way you do it is a little different. Some of the detail about the relatively of how you create credits and so forth is different. But fundamentally, in an economic sense and in an environmental sense, they do the same thing. Um, and so the important issue now is that the combination of these things, as Kerry described, it can be taken forward and a future government can just turn the dial. That's what they want to do. Um, I, I think it's just very important that the two are linked together because whatever abatement, um, whatever abatement standard we decide, the governments decide they want to do, it does have immediate implications on reliability, not necessarily this week or this year, but over the course of the next decade um, for particular states. That's yes, down here. physics. Thank you. Uh, Petra Stock. Um, this year I had the pleasure of visiting California. I saw all parts of the Californian energy system. And here is a major global economy which is not only setting strong targets, equivalent to about 60% renewable energy in 2030 when you add in hydro, but looks set to beat them. They're going to probably meet their target in 2020. And California is really reaping the benefits of that approach. Its economy is growing, population is growing, uh, new businesses are attracted to the state and emissions are going down. So I just wonder, what is it about Australia that sees a workable climate policy being one that will deliver around 1% more renewables in 2030 compared to business as usual as Finkel modelled it? Can I just start? Yeah, right. I mean, I suspect California didn't have a massive increase in network prices. I suspect the whole of the US has got very, very low gas prices. I suspect the retail costs haven't gone through the roof. So just before we get on to climate, I'm just saying we've got a problem. <coughs> I mean, all I was trying to say is we've got a problem over here. Separate. They've got their own problem. They're the fleet of Sure. That's a problem. Anyway, sorry. I, I mean, suspect mate, that question was directed to you. Do you want to pick up that? I mean, do you think you've already answered that? You can, um, we can set higher emissions abatement targets if it's, if it's the will of the people and the governments um, go with it. It's not, there's nothing stopping us from doing that. But it's just that when you do do that, you do have to have dispatchable power and California's got it. Um, and as, as Rod says, the US at the moment is, um, is actually awash with very cheap gas and they're still running nuclear plants and et cetera, et cetera. facility blew out, they lost a whole lot of capacity and in responding to that issue, the state put in a whole lot of large scale batteries 
Um, they've had their own issues, but they've dealt with it in a completely different way. It's no good the way we do this in Australia of excusing our poor performance by saying, oh, it's different over there. Um, I think when you look at California, it's very similar in a lot of ways. They've had a lot of challenges, but the way they've approached the problem is completely different. They see it as an opportunity rather than a roadblock. Yeah, I, think, I, mean, I don't think we see it differently from no. that, actually. I mean, there's, there's clearly... Uh, there are many differences in terms of the way the politics <laughs> has played out there and here, and some of those challenges are real, and some of them are very frustrating. But the, I think many people would argue, particularly in industry and, other, and some governments, that we need to see this as an opportunity. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think what we see now is one of the first times we may actually have an opportunity to set us on the right path. And that will, be a, that will still be a very political issue. Hopefully what we're seeing out of the NEG and some of the stuff Rod's talking about addresses the beginnings of how we might actually get ourselves out of that mess. It'll be different, but it'll hopefully have some of the common outcomes. I agree with you, Petra, that, that certainly California um, and other, other countries uh, have got different successes and also different failures as well. So, um, yeah, that'll be our challenge. Next, we, please. We have a big battery too, soon. We do. Very big one in a little state relative to California. Uh, Caitlin, right up the back. Uh, evening, uh, Campbell Watt here, not from any particular organisation, but just a um, residential home energy user um, with an interest in energy policy. Now, my question relates to uh, gas prices and the gas market. Um, obviously, you explained earlier that the, um, the bringing on of the three export um, facilities in, in Queensland and the moratoriums in Victoria and another state, I think you mentioned, have both contributed um, to the increase in gas prices. Uh, there's been obviously a lot of finger pointing around that, okay, Victoria should withdraw the moratorium and release the exploration opportunities. But I just wonder if more gas was brought onto the market, wouldn't, how much would then be uh, potentially exported? What capacity are the exporters running at and what would prevent us not to just be back at square one again from them just exporting it out and... Um, are still left with a, a potential supply and price issue? Yeah, look, good question. If you, if you um, uh, produce it in Victoria, New South Wales, then it's just alternative uses. Do you sell it to local players or do you ex use the expensive pipeline system to get it up to Queensland? I suspect that uh, it would very much be used locally. The other issue was that, I mean, I was more so much, not so much talking about two causes. I'm not exactly blaming the moratoriums per se. I'm simply saying they came at a time when they were expected. Um, and I suspect that now that we've got this gas crisis, if there was a lot more gas found, I don't think anybody's going to let it out of the country. I just think the world has changed. Um, the policy on reservation, uh, the mindset has changed. So I think more gas is going to lower prices. No one's going to let it out of the country, in my view. Uh, hi, uh, my name's uh, Rob Coe. I'm asking a question in a personal capacity, although, uh, full disclosure, I work for a company called Morgan Stanley. Um, so, so I guess this is a question mainly for Rod. You mentioned you had a very uh, elegant expression of the, uh, the dog chasing the car. Could I maybe ask you to flesh out what you will do if you catch the car? So, um, so we just want to... Step one is just understand 
exactly who did what and how the bidding system worked in that in response and then you can think about in that context the market rules uh, so contrary to uh, various reports of newspapers we've never suggested you break anybody up um, that's been suggested for years and we've each time said that's too hard uh, for a whole range of reasons uh, but can you think about changes in rules? Now, that's a very complex topic. It's been looked at many times. But I think what we can do that nobody else can do is use our information gathering powers to actually see who was trying to do what and what was being done. And that might help us think about whether the rules need to change so that those sorts of things are harder to do in future. And I think as well as the rules, there are specific constraints within the market structure too that um, are important in... Um, corporate behaviour, so that the very thin interconnects, say from Queensland into northern New South Wales, means that if you're um, trading, you can probably play games around those sort of constraints. You're probably a trader, so you would know. But uh, <laughs> um, it's those sorts of um, constraints that could be um, sort of physically attended to as well, I think. I'm conscious of the time. We have one more question here, and I think we might then have to uh, bring itself to a close. I'm aware there's quite a few people with their hands up, so. Thanks, and thanks for the great discussion. My question's about demand management in gas, because I'm very excited to hear Kerry say on a number of occasions about the opportunity for demand management in the national electricity market, because uh, as Michael, you would know, the missing cheapest form of abatement is that energy that yeah. we don't use at Correct. all. But it does suffer behavioural barriers. It's a zero, zero cost at the bottom. Correct. Yeah. Um, but it's not zero cost in terms of human time, management time. There are a lot of well-studied reasons why um, markets don't chase what looks like an easy win to save energy. And the California example is a good one here where yeah. they have a, a more heavy-handed approach from the regulator yeah. to encourage, assist, incentivise demand yeah. management. So on the gas issue, Rod, you mentioned that the, the only solution is, is to look at more supply. But indeed, uh, when we've, at ClimateWorks Australia, I should have said, sorry, Anna Scarbett from ClimateWorks, our research is, is um, looking now at what opportunity in gas efficiency there might be in terms of equipment upgrades at end of life. And it could be as much as 25% of current usage or possibly up to two thirds of the crisis shortage over a 10 or 15 years, say, equipment cycle. What opportunities do you have in the current market rules or um, availability of new approaches through national energy productivity policy or other measures to take perhaps California or other approach of more active encouragement slash um, incentives for that? Having spoken to about 50 energy uh, gas consuming companies, um, I'm afraid price has sorted that out. Uh, they are madly reducing their gas mm. supply. The number of companies I've come across who have said to me, look, I was using, you know, 100 gas petadules or whatever measure you want, and uh, I've got that down to 80 and my gas bill still more than doubled. They are running around like headless chooks trying to get, trying to do that. Whether there's things you can do in the market, I honestly don't know uh, and haven't thought about, but uh, certainly demand management 
uh, certainly reducing gas usage is, is a massive focus, as it is for electricity usage. There's just a, the, the energy saving that we're getting on gas and electricity is enormous because it's being forced on companies with the price. Anything more we can do on the electricity side, I think is fantastic because we've had a silly market that just assumes demand is vertical and we play with supply. So I think there's more scope for active and perhaps heavy-handed measures on the electricity side. Uh, on demand management, I haven't had the wit to work it out on the gas side, but I know a lot of other people are, to save themselves money. Mm. So, sorry, not a very good answer, but it's happening. It really is happening. So, in summary, I think you can see why we will be able to run a number of future energy forums next year, <laughs> because A, there's lots of questions from the audience we didn't answer, and B, there's quite a few topics we didn't cover, uh, if not in detail. I just leave you a couple of thoughts. One is that um, uh, there's been quite a bit of... Um, in the media today, and there will be in the next couple of days, the results of the economic modelling <laughs> that was carried out for the NEG. And the, the minister who, um, to which this report has been produced on the economic modelling made the point himself that economic modelling just proves, was only invented to prove that astrology could be pretty good, right? So um, <laughs> one wonders about that. And when you look at the word guarantee, anybody who looks at, looks at those numbers and says, in average between 20 and 20, 2030, you'll be $400 a year better off, Keep your electricity bill for this year. In 2025, <laughs> get your electricity bill out and give Kerry a call um, or the then Prime Minister, Josh Frydenberg, to say you'd like to call in the guarantee. Um, the please, guarantee. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.